I have an uh, article here from the Lubbock Baptist Association in 1977, March of 1977. And on the front page of this uh, newsletter is an article about the Arnett Benson Baptist Church. And Arnett Benson is an area of town just north of uh, Texas Tech, sort of uh, north of 4th Street, and uh, there's a sort of a sizable neighborhood there. And a, that a church was planted there in 1945 by Calvary Baptist Church. And the church that was planted was called Arnett Benson uh, Baptist Church. And so it began in 1945 and immediately began to grow. And uh, by 1952, it started another church. Flint Avenue Mission, which is now Flint Avenue Baptist Church. And uh, then in 1955, just three years later, it started another church, Hillcrest Mission. In 1958, it started another church, Pleasant Ridge Mission. And then in 1970, it began uh, something that was sort of uh, interesting at the time. It began a ministry to people that spoke Spanish, whereas the congregation itself, you know, spoke English. And they housed that ministry within their own facilities. That began, it was called the Spanish Department of Arnett Benson. That began in 1970. And then by 1977, uh, Arnett Benson Baptist Church uh, uh, began in at least one aspect, in a financial aspect, its greatest gift, its greatest missionary endeavor to date. And that was that it donated its property, its building, the furniture, the equipment, all of that to the Spanish department so they could be their own church. And it did that at a cost in 1977 dollars. That was a $325,000 donation, leaving the English speakers at Arnett Benson Baptist Church without a place to uh, worship. Uh, but there was a plan, and the plan entailed uh, purchasing 10 acres of land out in the middle of a cotton field um, right off of Frankfurt Avenue. And this area of land, this area of Lubbock, is uh, called uh, Broadview. And that became uh, the church that we're a part of today, Broadview Baptist Church. We still have the 10 acres of land. Um, we, we, we utilize about three of those acres right now. Um, but I, I share that with you because uh, we have a very rich history. A very rich history with regard to missions. A very rich history with regard to uh, disciple making. With regard to church planting. And uh, I wonder, I uh, don't have this in my notes really, but I just out of my own curiosity, how many of you were members at Arnett Benson Baptist Church? There's one over here, one back there, one down here. Your grandmother went there. Another one, where, where's that? Right there. Anna, Anna as well. Um, and for the longest time, you know, I, I considered... Uh, our church to be about 
uh, 46 years old, entering its 46th year of ministry. That's really not true. Uh, our church began under a different name in 1945. And, um, and so, as I began to think about these things, and it being the, you know, a new year, uh, it made me wonder if God might be calling us to tap into these deep roots of missions and disciple-making and to see, once again, what might bear fruit. It might be completely different than in the past. I would, I would expect it would be very different than in the past. But I believe that God wants us to be about disciple-making because disciple-making is critically important. The Bible says, Jesus said, uh, in fact, in Matthew chapter 28, it said that Jesus came up and he spoke to his disciples and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said this after he was resurrected from the dead, as his disciples had, had seen him that day, and were still trying to figure a lot of things out. And it wasn't very long after that that the very first church, in essence, in Jerusalem began. And I want you to consider this possibility can you imagine if the first church, that church there in Jerusalem, said, you know, we're so grateful for God's salvation for us, but we really don't care to make disciples of others. I mean, we don't, we don't really care to go into new areas and to start new churches. Uh, we just sort of want to grow deep here. We want this to be all about us. We just want to have a big, happy church here. Can you imagine if they had that kind of attitude, basically dismissing the one command in that verse, in those three verses, the one command, the one imperative verb, is the verb that we translate make disciples. I mean, if that was their attitude, then the good news of salvation would never go beyond Jerusalem. The Christian faith would be very much centered in one country, in fact, in one city, there in Jerusalem. Uh, but God has made this world to be a very big world with respect to the most annoying ride at Disneyland. Uh, it is not a small world after all. It is a very big world. There are gobs and gobs. That's a numerical number, gobs. Gobs of people everywhere. And everywhere people end up, the good news of Jesus needs to go there too. And if people in that area uh, begin to hear about Jesus and they respond to the gospel in faith, then they become the church in that area. And so we need to be about the business of being disciple makers. And so I, I, I want to pose just a simple question. What might stop us from becoming effective disciple makers? And I'll tell you the answer right from the outset. There's really only one obstacle stopping us as believers from helping other people become believers and helping them grow in their faith and, and then do the same with others. There's only one thing stopping us, and it's us. 
It's us. I'm not trying to be cute with that statement. I'm not trying to be profound. Oh, how deep, how theologically deep he is. I'm not trying to do that at all. I'm not trying to be accusatory of anyone else. Okay? It's simply the way it is. It's just the way that it is. The, The reality is, every church, including ours, we can be whatever kind of church that we want to be. Now, why are some churches like ours very friendly? Because they choose to be friendly. And by the way, there's a number of guests here today, and do not prove me wrong when I brag on how friendly we are (laughs) by not greeting them. If you see someone that you don't know, uh, introduce yourself to them. You might wait till after the sermon at this point, but (laughs) go ahead and introduce yourself, okay? Why are some churches, we have a reputation among Southern Baptist churches in Lubbock as being extremely friendly church, and not just friendly to each other, but friendly to newcomers, friendly to guests. Why is that? Because we choose to be, because that's important to us. Why are some churches unfriendly? And we've all been to churches, perhaps, where, where we've received less than a cold shoulder. I mean, we've received nothing. Why are some churches that way? Because they choose to be. They choose to be. Now, why do some churches have this kind of ministry, and other churches have that kind of ministry, and all of these ministries might be well and good and, and uh, legitimate, but why do some churches do one thing and other churches do another thing? Because they choose to. It's that simple. And why are some churches effective at disciple-making? Because they choose to be. Because they choose to make it a priority. And so the only thing stopping us from doing whatever we want to do is us. So the question is not, can we be effective disciple makers, but will we? Because the answer is, yes, we can. So the questions we really need to ask is, are these two questions. Number one, how? how if we were to really engage in, a, in an effective way in disciple making, how would we do that? And the second question is, what would it take for us to get there? So let me just address a couple of these questions. How would we engage in disciple-making? There's a lot of ways to do it. But the way that I think we ought to do it is very simple. It's by the book. And by the book, I mean this book right here. The book. God's book. God's handbook. God's manual. For church and for life and for everything else. We're talking about Scripture. How should we engage in disciple-making? By the book. You see, the vast majority of disciple-making efforts in the United States today is a mixture of the Bible plus conventional wisdom. And I believe that to be the wrong recipe. Why? Because conventional wisdom says this. Well, it takes a seminary degree to make disciples. That's the job of the expert. That's why we hire the pastor, you know, for him to go out and do it. That's conventional thinking that it takes a seminary degree to make disciples. Jesus turned the world upside down with fishermen, tax collectors, all kinds of uh, common, regular people. And that's what you and I are. We're common, regular people. It doesn't take a seminary degree. 
Another conventional thought is, well, disciple-making means we have to invest in a lot of church buildings. It's a very conventional way to think of it. Very American way to think of it. And if that's the truth, if, that, if we buy into that, then disciple-making disciple means that churches must buy property and build a church building in order for them to make disciples. But I want you to think about a couple of things. Number one, if you haven't noticed, we have a younger generation. I don't mean in this church, I mean in society. We have a younger generation that by and large is disinterested in organized religion. Okay? They're not interested in church buildings and the activities that go on in the church buildings. But they are very interested in Jesus. They're very interested in Jesus. So, if our strategy depends on church buildings to reach people that are disinterested in church buildings, how do you think that's going to go? You know, if we, if we, how can we reach these younger generations with the gospel if we're depending on disciple-making happening in an organized religion kind of way in a church building on Sunday mornings? Okay? I'm not against churches. I'm not against organized religion. Fortunately, we're not very organized here. But I'm not against church buildings. But please understand that it is a conventional way of thinking that the only way to really reach more people is to build more buildings. And I don't think that's very scriptural. In fact, you won't find a church building anywhere in the New Testament. Problem number two. Even if we were to buy into that, it is impossible for us to build enough buildings to house all of the disciples that we need to in order to keep up with population growth. It is literally impossible. Now, let me ask you a totally random question. How many of you made the grave mistake of going shopping on a Saturday sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas? Uh, some of you would admit to that error. And uh, what did you encounter? Crazy drivers, right? All over the place, right? Traffic all over the place. If you went to the mall, uh, you need prayer. I don't know. Um, but you had all kinds of traffic, all kinds of crazy drivers. Uh, and, and then it leads me to this question. How many of you faced a traffic jam coming to church today? Not many. Not any. Why? Because on any given Sunday, approximately 15% of Lubbockites attend church. Any given Sunday, 15%. 85% of people have something better to do. And, and, I'll, and I'll, uh, I'll preface that by saying that uh, if, if someone has to work on Sunday mornings, I get it. My dad had to. He was an air traffic controller. Airport, airport doesn't close. And I'm always grateful, as I mentioned before, of um, first responders I'm glad they don't take Sunday mornings off because emergencies are not limited to Monday through Saturday. But you need to understand that the vast majority of people don't go to church on Sunday morning because they choose not to. 15% of Lubbock County finds itself in a church on any given Sunday. Now, by the year 2050, there will be approximately another 150,000 people in Lubbock County. And if we wanted to maintain, let's just say we maintain that number of 15%. 15% 15 
of, which is current church attendance uh, compared to the population, 15% of that 150,000 number is 22,500 people. That means that if we maintain things the way they are, church attendance will increase by 2050 that number, 22,500 people. Now, we're an average-sized church. We're actually a little bit larger than average as far as the numbers go. On any given Sunday, we have about 100 people that come to worship. But let's just say we're an average-sized church. 100 people, that means that we're going to need 225 new churches in Lubbock County by 2050. The average startup cost, according to the North American Mission Board, for a new church, the startup cost alone is $100,000. That means that we're going to need to raise $22,500,000 to build enough churches to maintain 15% of the general population. That assumes that there are no church closures of existing churches. That assumes that there's no reduction in church attendance at any church in Lubbock. And most churches in Lubbock are like ours, a little bit on the older side. By the time it's 2050, I will be 81 years old. And so you're, if you're older than me, you might make some eternal plans. Okay? By that time. So... That doesn't even answer this final question. What about the other 127,500 people? What do we do with them? No idea. You see, I believe that since Jesus told us to make disciples, that we need to have a plan, we're responsible to have a plan that can potentially make disciples of all 150,000 new Lubbockites in the next three decades. And you might look at this dynamic and say, well, it's impossible. You know, look at our church budget. We can't raise 22500000 can we? It's impossible, and I would agree. It is impossible. It's impossible for us to do the work that God has called us to do if we follow the wrong recipe. But, Instead of mixing Scripture's instruction with conventional wisdom, what if we followed the Bible's instruction alone? What if I told you that Jesus gave us a timeless disciple-making recipe that has minimal costs and outpaces population growth? That is the kind of disciple-making movement that I want to be a part of. Because that's exactly what happened in the first century. Now, I mean, again, remember, we can do whatever we want as a church. And if we want, we can throw thousands and ten thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars at partially biblical church planting efforts that are mathematically proven 
to result in people coming to Christ by addition while the population grows by multiplication. We can do that. Or we can do things by the book. God has given us everything we need right here in this book. And if we get back to doing things that way, that means that we have to discard some of our conventional thinking methods. You see, when we do things by the book, it means that we have to be willing, I'm going to say the word, we have to be willing to change. We have to be willing to change. Change is a four-letter word in Baptist circles. You might not think so by looking at the word, but Baptists don't like change. In fact, people generally don't like change. Now, I know there's a lot of Christians that assume that because they've been doing church the same way all their lives that they're doing it by the book. And I don't even want to tell you what happens when you assume, but it's not good. Okay? And I know that a lot of you don't like change because it makes you uncomfortable. But I want you to think about this dynamic. Some Christians take comfort in that things will not change. Other Christians take comfort in that they are doing things according to God's Word. Which one are you? What brings you comfort? That you're doing things according to God's Word or that things will never change for you. I want to remind you that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life at salvation, He begins this process called sanctification. A lifelong process by which He makes you more like Christ. I'm going to rephrase that. A lifelong process by which He changes you. The Holy Spirit is very much about change. And so let's be careful not to allow our hesitancy to change, limit how God might want to change our lives or even change our church. And the flip side of that coin is this. Let's be careful to make sure that the changes that we do are by the book. Not just changes for change's sake, but changes according to be, excuse me, changes that make us more biblical. I want us to be like the, the believers in Berea. In Acts chapter 17, verse 10, it says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. And this is what the Christians in Berea did. They examined the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Let's be like that. So dedicated to the Word of God. So dedicated to what Scripture says that we allow God to change us. And doing things by the book not only means that we, we're willing to change, but it means that we ourselves must do God's work in disciple-making and missions as opposed to allowing someone else to do it. In other words... We cannot have an attitude that says, okay, that's why we pay the pastor. He has to do all the disciple-making for us. Okay, because if that's your attitude about the pastor or the pastoral staff, 
then the pastoral, the pastoral staff is nothing more than a hireling at that point. Pastoral staff is not an under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's the pastoral staff's job to equip the saints for the work of the service, according to Ephesians 4. And for that matter, we cannot say, we cannot have the attitude that says, okay, I've given money to missions, which is a great thing, by the way. I encourage you to do it. I've given money to missions, therefore, I've done my part. We can't do that. We cannot simply financially or even prayerfully support others doing disciple-making and missions. We must be about the task ourselves. So what would it take for us to become very effective disciple-makers? One of the things it absolutely must take is prayer. We cannot do any of this. We cannot be effective disciple-makers apart from prayer. And let me just tell you what I mean by disciple-making in terms that are personal to you. What I mean is this. I want to see the people in your life who don't know Jesus come to the Lord. That's what I'm talking about. And I want to see them grow in their faith. And I want to see their world, the people in their world, come to the Lord. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about disciple-making. We're talking about lives that are transformed by Jesus Christ. I will not ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us have somebody in our life that we love who is not following the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'd like to see that change. I believe it can happen. If we follow God's recipe, if we do things by the book, and a very major part, an essential part, of doing things by the book means that we do things with prayer. It has to be done with prayer. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 15. One of my very favorite passages of Scripture. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine so neither can you unless you abide in me I am the vine you are the branches he who abides in me and I in him he bears much fruit for apart from me you can do Nothing. Then Jesus said, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and 
my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. In verse 7, when Jesus talked about ask whatever you wish, so much of commercialized American Christianity takes that to mean name it and claim it, whatever kind of health and wealth and prosperity you want. All you got to do is reach out and grab it, and God's forced to do it for you. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about disciple-making. He's talking about bearing fruit. If we abide in Christ through prayer, and Christ's words abide in us, then we can ask God for whatever we want with regard to bearing fruit. And He will do it. God is glorified by this. But we must, we must be people of prayer. There was a man many years ago by the name of George Mueller. He was uh, a man of great prayer, a man of God's word. He ran an orphanage in Bristol, England. And I want to read to you one of the most famous stories, which is a true story from George Mueller's life. George Mueller looked at all the, little, all the pale little faces gathered around the table. Many of them were still drowsy, rubbing the sleep from their eyes and stifling sleepy yawns. There were plates set around the table, empty plates and empty cups. His gaze lingered on the empty dishes for a moment and then up at the adult helper standing behind the children. He saw the concern on their faces, the doubt and worry. It saddened him. He cleared his throat. Let's thank the Lord for our food. The children folded their hands and bowed their heads. The helpers followed slowly. Mueller breathed deep and began to pray. He was careful not to pray any differently than the way he normally prayed. He thanked God for the new day and for giving the children another night of safety and rest. He asked God to draw each one of the children closer to him naming a few of them and lifting up their needs. Lastly, he thanked God for the food they were about to eat. There was a moment of silence. Mueller had raised his head, as had the children. A few of the helpers seemed almost scared to open their eyes. Mueller felt a small hand rest on his arm. A little girl looked up at him, confused. But Mr. Mueller... We don't have any breakfast. He smiled and was about to answer when there was a knock at the front door. One of the helpers went to answer it. He came back, eyes wide. Mr. Mueller, you have a visitor. A man stepped into the room, hat in hand. George Mueller, 
Mueller stood, yes. May I help you? The man smiled a little and rubbed his chin. He said, you see, I think I'm here to help you. I run the bakery just a few streets over. Normally I don't go for such things, but I had a strange dream last night. And well, I believe I'm supposed to give you some bread. It's outside right now. Mueller smiled and looked at the helpers. They couldn't contain their surprise and joy. Mueller and a few of them followed the baker outside and found a wagon laden with baked goods, enough to last them for a long time. One of the young men grinned as he hefted a basket of loaves to his shoulders, and he said, Even the sparrows are fed. Right, Mr. Mueller? They had barely finished unloading the baker's wagon when a loud noise caught their attention. The milkman had just been passing when the axle of his cart broke. The milkman got out of his cart and shook his head, and he said, the milk will spoil before I can get it delivered by foot, and he noticed the baker there next to Miller's orphanage with the empty wagon, and he chewed his, his lip and began to think, And he called out, hey, Mr. Mueller, send some of your young men over here. You can have all the milk you can unload from my cart today. To anyone watching, the defining feature of George Mueller's life was his unshakable confidence and faith in God. That particular breakfast at his home for orphans in Bristol, England, is perhaps the most well-known story of his life. He was a man who never seemed to waste time and worry. He exemplified the commandment of Christ in Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. When we think of George Mueller, we think of a man who knows peace. However, there was a time in his life when he knew nothing of the peace of God. In his youth, he was a habitual liar and a thief stealing from his parents and his friends regularly. Sin was eating him alive to the extent that on the night his mother died, he was wandering the streets drunk. He had no interest in God and no intention of leaving his beloved sins in order to follow Christ. Well, despite his son's reputation, Mueller's father sent him to the university with the purpose of studying for the ministry. Well, at the University of Howe, Mueller met a group of Christians who invited him to their Bible study, and this was a new experience for Mueller. He later recalled, I had no Bible, and I had not read a Bible for years. I went to church, but seldom. From custom, I took the Lord's Supper twice a year. I had never heard the gospel preached up to the beginning of November 1825, That was the year he began his studies. And he said, I had never met with the person who told me that he meant by the help of God to live according to the Scriptures. In short, I had not the least idea that there were any persons really different from myself, except in degree. Through the influence of this group, God began to work in his heart. For the first time in his life, He clearly saw the power of Christ to change lives and the love God poured out upon his children through this group of believers. Eventually, the same power changed his own life and he was conquered by Christ. 
He said, at last I saw Christ as my Savior, and I believed in Him and gave myself to Him. The burden of my sins rolled off from me, and a great love for Christ filled my soul. I loved Christ then, and I loved Him more year after year after year. Mueller became hungry for the nearness of God, and he began planting the seeds that would later grow into the faith he is remembered for. He spent tireless hours in the Scriptures, utterly convinced that in order to be close to the Lord, it was necessary to fellowship with Him. The vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and thoughts. Mueller, needless to say, lived up to his words. The orphanage that Mueller ran, he did not run it in order to house and to feed Bristol's homeless children. He ran it to show the world that God could be trusted. We read a story about this, about Mueller's life, and we envy that kind of deep faith. We envy that kind of man of prayer. The question for us is, do we envy his faith while still neglecting Mueller's God? God is calling us to be people of prayer, to be people who love others so much that we want to make disciples of them.